everybody wants. We're glad that we can still worship together with you today. I want to invite you to, um, if you're watching on Facebook Live, I want to invite you to send prayer requests. Go on Facebook Live in the comments and let us know that you're watching with us so we know who's worshiping with us today. If you have a question about anything that um, I'm doing during my sermon, you can, you can send me real-time questions and I'll do my best to ask, answer them. Um, you can do prayer requests and we'll all pray for each other. So um, we'll, we'll get through this together. I want to invite you, if you haven't already, to, to download our church app. Go to your favorite app store and just download, look for uh, FUMC Gadsden and download the church app. That way you can get announcements, you can get the latest updates that we have, you can go and listen to um, older sermons, you can carry them with you, listen to them in your car, you can give online, you can do all kinds of things with our church app. It's well done and I hope that you'll consider doing that. We're going to start by praying, so wherever you are, and um, we invite you to just pray with us. God, thank you for being with us today and being with all of our friends, regardless of where they are. And these are anxious times, so we ask that you would calm us and that you would give us your peace today. We ask that your strong presence would be with us and that our hearts and minds would be open as we Turn to your word, and as we worship together, we pray that it will be something that will bring a smile to your face today. We remember all the ones um, that are hurting today, the ones that are sick, the ones who are afraid of being sick, and all those who need you in a special way. We lift up to you, and we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're continuing today this series for the season of Lent called Renovate. Uh, building a life with God, and it's all about embracing the metaphor that the Bible uses a lot about how that we are God's spiritual houses, and from there, knowing that we're not just any spiritual houses, we're fixer-uppers, and that God wants to do an amazing renovation inside of us. The book of Nehemiah is our foundation for this series, and today we're going to look at what to know before you build. So before we do anything else... Um, let's kind of start with God, and let's look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 16 today. I'm going to just read it for you. So I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I got up during the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the animal I rode. I went out by the night by the valley gate past the dragon spring and to the dung gate and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool but there was no place for the animal that I was riding to continue so I went up by the valley uh, to the valley by night and inspected the wall then I turned back and entered by the valley gate so I returned the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests and the nobles and the officials and the rest that we were to do the work. Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Oh, one more thing. Uh, if you download the church app, you can follow along the outline that's provided there and you can fill that in and do all kinds of cool things. 
But we're starting to talk about what to do before we build, what to know before we build, and before we do anything else, I think we need to start with how we look at God. What do we think about God, and what do we think that God thinks about us? When did you first start thinking about God? Do you even remember? One of my um, seminary professors, Chuck Connery, tells the story about when he first started thinking about God as a four-year-old boy. He um, was learning things from his mom. His mom was a teacher. She was always trying to teach him things, and she was teaching him the Lord's Prayer. And, of course, they said, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And Chuck stopped his mom in mid-sentence and said, this. Mommy, who is God? At this, his mom went out into the hallway and took the crucifix off the wall. They were Catholics, and apparently all Catholics in that day and time had a crucifix somewhere in the house. So she took the crucifix down off the wall, and she got down onto Chuck's level, and she looked at him, and she pointed to the tiny figure that was on the crucifix, and she said, son, this is God. And she went on to tell him that God is all-knowing and God is all-powerful and that God is without beginning and without end and all of this heavy stuff really for a four-year-old to take in. And then she also told him, God knows your thoughts, honey. And so even when you say your prayers and you don't say them out loud, God still hears them. And whenever you do something that's good, it pleases God. And whenever you do something that's not good... It makes God sad. And so Chuck said that afternoon when he lay down on his bed to take his nap that he pictured for the first time in his mind what God must be like. And the picture that he had in his mind was the crucifix that his mom had showed him. And so in his little four-year-old mind as he's laying there on his bed, he sees a, a crucifix floating over his bed and... This, in his mind, is what God is. And so in his heart, he doesn't say it out loud because his mom said he didn't have to say it out loud. But in his mind, he said, in his thoughts, he said, uh, I love you, God. And he said that pictured in his mind the, the cross beam of the cross turned up in a smile. And so these were his earliest thoughts about God. Of course, later on that week, he got into some trouble, as four-year-olds are prone to do. Um, and on those days, when he had gotten into trouble and when he did things that he knew he shouldn't do, he would picture the cross floating over his bed, and the crossbar, cross beam of the cross would turn down in a frowny face. Um, does that sound kind of silly to you? Um, but do you know what's even sillier? There are grown-ups that have never outgrown the image that they have of God from when they were just little kids. And they still think that God loves them when they're a good boy or a good girl and that God doesn't love them when they're a bad boy or a bad girl or that God runs away and hides from them or does some kind of game like that or maybe that God even goes on a vacation sometimes and is never around at all. Even more prevalent is the view that God is just super angry and vengeful all the time. I think a lot of this attitude can be traced back to one of the most famous and one of the most well-read 
sermons of all time, not one of mine, um, but a sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached in 1741 entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You might remember that from some of your history classes. It's kind of a classic, but it's a classic not in a good way, I don't think, because of how it portrays God. Let me share one passage from this sermon. It's kind of a famous passage. It's the spider passage. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worth of nothing else but to cast in the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear the uh, to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Wow. Good grief. And this is the best known, most read sermon of all times. And so my question is simply this. Is that really what God is like? Is this really how God looks at us, God's own creation? And I'm afraid to say that deep down, some people still do think that. But consider this. This picture that Jonathan Edwards paints in his sermon is nothing like the only reliable picture that we have of what God is like, and that is Jesus Christ. God in human flesh who dwelt among us. And so what does all this have to do with Nehemiah and about us renovating our spiritual house? It's this. Before we engage in any renovation or anything like that, any kind of inner work that we do, before we build anything, the foundation has to be how we see God and how we think God sees us. So, first thing to know before we build is this. God is good. God loves you. And God is moving toward you in love and not away from you in revulsion. Let's please, please start with this foundation. In fact, if I could only preach one message, if I only had enough air in my lungs to tell you one thing, it might just be that first point. God is good. God loves us. God is moving toward us in love and not away from us in revulsion. With all my heart and soul, I believe that that's who God is as reflected in the life of Jesus Christ. And I believe this because I study the Gospels and because this is the Jesus that I see pictured in the Gospels. This is what really makes me fall in love with God in the first place, this picture of God. And I'll just give you one example from one Gospel. I could give you many, but... This is one of the greatest, most God-defining chapters in the whole Bible to me. It's Luke chapter 15. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. I'm just going to kind of hit the high points. This chapter starts with the tax collectors and sinners coming near to Jesus, and he welcomes them at his table. And why would those people be drawn to Jesus in the first place? They're drawn to Jesus in the first place because God is good and because God loves us. 
and because God is moving toward us in love and not away from us in revulsion. And that's what Jesus shows them, and that's why the common people received him gladly. But the scribes and the Pharisees were grumbling, and they were saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Because the scribes and the Pharisees had this posture and this attitude toward others. And it went something like this. You are not good enough. You're not pure enough. You don't do a good job of keeping the rules and regulations as we define them. They had 613 of them, by the way. God is repulsed by your impurity. God rejects you, and we do too. That was their attitude, the scribes and Pharisees. Now, I know that's 2,000 years ago, right? But for some, and for many, really, today, that Pharisee's posture, that Pharisee's attitude is all they've ever heard about God. It's what they have been told by certain people, by certain churches. And if you've been made to feel this way, I'm very sorry. It's just the wrong picture of who God is. I've had people in my own life that have tried to make me feel this way, like I'm some kind of God's reject or something. But listen, we've got a lot of bad news in this world, but there is good news. And the good news is that Jesus gets to tell us what God is like. And the Pharisees don't get the last word. The Pharisees didn't get the last word in Luke chapter 15 because Jesus responded by telling three parables back to back to back that tell us about what God is like. Um, Again, I'm just going to hit the high notes of these little parables. The first one is the parable of the lost sheep. I'll bet you know that one. A shepherd has a hundred sheep, and one of them gets lost in the wilderness, and the shepherd goes to look for that one that's lost, goes and searches out that one that's lost. He finds it, he lays it over his shoulders, and he takes it back to the 99. He calls his friends and his neighbors, and he says, Hey, rejoice with me. Let's have a party. I found the sheep that was lost. Okay, so God is the shepherd in this parable, right? We are the sheep. We all see that. And then right on the back of that parable, Jesus tells the parable of the lost coin. In this one, a woman has a bag with ten silver coins in it, and one of them comes up missing. So she lights a lamp, and she gets the broom, and she sweeps the house until she finds the one missing coin. And when she finds it, she calls all of her friends and her neighbors, and she says, rejoice with me. Let's have a party. I found the coin that I had lost. Okay, right? God is the woman in this story, and we're the coins, you see. Searching, rejoicing. And then Jesus tells one of his best-known parables of all time, one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, the parable of the prodigal son. You know that one. A man has two sons, and the younger one asks for his inheritance in advance. In other words, he asks for what he would have received after his father had died. Go ahead and give it to me now, Dad. That must have hurt his dad's feelings. His inheritance would have been one-third of the property. His older brother would have been due two-thirds. So the father lets him have it. He lets him have that property, and I guess he sells it and cashes it in because in a few days he's off to bright lights and big city, whatever that looked like in that day. And he parties his way through his inheritance, spends it all up. And once it's all gone, all of his friends are also all gone. 
and he gets desperate. He has no money, he has no friends, he has nothing, and he has to get the only job available, which is feeding the pigs. He's there in the pig pen, and things get so bad, and he gets so hungry that he wants to eat the pig slop. But one day, he comes to himself, and in some kind of moment of clarity, he realizes that even his father's hired hands have it better than he does. At least they have enough to eat. So he thinks, I'll go home to my father, and here is the speech that I'll use. I'll say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please just take me on as one of your hired hands. And so this is the speech that he rehearses over and over again as he heads toward home. He's approaching home, and his father sees him from a long ways off. So pause the story right there. I want you to just, for a moment, close your eyes and picture the father looking down the road, seeing his prodigal son returning. What I want you to see in your mind's eye is his reaction. How does he react to his son? Does he react as if the prodigal were some loathsome insect held over the fire by a spider's web? Does he react as if his prodigal were an abominable, venomous serpent? Does he recoil in horror at the smell of the pig pen on his son's clothes? Does he turn his back and move away? Absolutely not. A thousand times, no. He runs to him. He's filled with compassion. He throws his arms around him. He kisses him. He orders the servant to go get sandals for his feet and a robe for his shoulders and a ring for his finger. This isn't some hired hand. This is his son. He was lost and now he's found. He says, go kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party. Well, meanwhile, the elder brother, he doesn't feel like partying. He's resentful. He's angry. He can't believe that the father has taken back this wayward brother. He can't believe he welcomes him to the table. He can't even bear to think of himself sitting at the table with this guy he no longer even thinks of as his brother. He's bitter. So, just so we're clear, in this parable, in this story, God is the loving father, right? The tax collectors and sinners are the prodigal sons. The scribes and the Pharisees are the elder brothers, don't you see? Pouting, standing outside, angry, grumbling, refusing to go in, sit at the table, thinking to themselves, saying out loud, how could you welcome somebody like that? So do you recognize that? The elder brother's posture, the Pharisee's posture, the one that says, hey, God is repulsed by your impurity, man. God rejects you, and I reject you too. God help us. But isn't that the way the church treats others? God forgive us. If this is our posture toward God's good creation. So what is God's posture? toward us, toward his good creation. It's only this. God's posture toward us is searching, redeeming love. God's not moving away from us, hiding from us. God's not repulsed by us. God is the shepherd looking for that one silly sheep that wandered off. 
God is the woman who lights the lamp and sweeps the floor to find that one missing coin that fell out of the bag. God is the loving father who day by day looks up the road every single day hoping to see his child returning home. Now, do people run away from God? Of course. Do we run away from God? Yes. But God's posture toward us never changes. It's always redeeming love. And please, if you're going to tell somebody what God is like, tell them that. Don't tell them that God hates them. There's enough of that bad theology that's going around as it is. So what to know before we build? This is the foundation. God is good. God loves us. God is moving toward us in love. The next thing we know before we build is that this renovation might hurt. (laughs) And it might take a while. And the expectations that we have are going to have to be adjusted. See, before Nehemiah could build anything, he had cried. He had his breakdown. He prayed. And when he got to Jerusalem to look around, he waited for three days And then he and a few of his trusted friends, without advertising to anybody, went out on like a uh, midnight reconnaissance trip. They rode around the walls of Jerusalem and they carefully inspected all the damage. Without officials from any agency telling him what to think, they just honestly looked and assessed for themselves. They had heard that the walls were broken down. They had heard that the gates had been burned with fire. Now they actually saw it for themselves. Okay, so they get back. Situation report. Things look bad. Situation report. This is going to hurt. And it's going to take a while. This is not going to be a quick fix. Is that something you can relate to? I can. One day on a a fall Saturday... uh, and Tammy was gone somewhere. I can't remember where she was gone. But I was at home with the kids, and uh, the girls were little, and Michael was just a toddler. And the girls came running in and said, Daddy, we want to go and rake up some leaves in the front yard. And we want to rake up a big pile of leaves so that we can jump and play in them. And I'm thinking at this point, man, that's win, win, right? The leaves get raked. Uh, they burn off some energy and have fun, and I can kind of focus on watching Michael, which is what I needed to do. So I said, sure, you know, have have fun, knock yourself out. And so they did have fun. I could see them through the window, raking up big piles of leaves and jumping in them, and then Michael and I would go outside, and we would jump in the leaves while everybody was having a lot of fun until, until a little while later, the girls come running in the house, and they say, Daddy, our hands hurt. And I said, well, come here and let me see. And they did. And they held out their little hands like this. And both of them, both hands were full of splinters. Just full of splinters. They didn't know what was going on. I did. And I realized too late that the rakes that they were using to rake up those leaves were a bunch of some old rakes that had been left behind at that house when we moved there. They had rickety old handles. And that's how they got their hands just full of splinters. And I realized it, but I realized it too late. And then I also realized something else. I was about to have to cause my children pain in order to make this better. And then it wasn't going to last just a little while. It was going to be a while. 
And so I went and I got a bottle of rubbing alcohol and a needle and some tweezers. And I told them they might want to go and put on the Powerpuff Girls. Wouldn't that be fun? Put on. The, by this time they were crying a little bit. They were about to be crying a lot. I don't know how long it took. Y'all, I don't know how many episodes of the Powerpuff Girls we watched that afternoon. I don't know how many Kleenexes we went through. It was a bunch. I know this. We all had to adjust our expectations of what was going to go down that day. But there was no other way around it, really. I was their dad. I loved them. I wasn't going to turn my back on them. I wasn't going to tell them, go put on some gloves so you can't even see that the splinters are there. We'll just pretend they're not there. I was going to have to be with them through the whole thing. I was going to have to do what I was going to have to do to help them through this. And I'm not telling you this because I think I'm some Superman dad. I'm not. I'm human and I mess up a lot. But my point is if I can have compassion, if I can stay with my own children, then God, who is 10,000 times more loving and compassionate than I could ever be, is going to be with us and is going to love us and is going to be there every step of the way, even when it hurts even when it takes longer than we ever thought. We need to know that before we build. And then finally, we, we need to know that, that renovation is about God's power. Our job is to have a little faith because it's God that works in us and we come to this process by faith. Now remember that faith, faith is basically believing in something before you ever see it. Because you trust the one that made the promise. You believe it before you ever see it with your eyes. And this renovation process that we're talking about all during the, the season of Lent, in order for this to work, we've got to have that firm foundation. Because the God that we have to put our trust in is the God who is good, the God who loves us, and the God who's not playing games with us, but is moving toward us in redeeming love. We have to remember that this is going to take a while. And that it may hurt, and we might have to adjust our expectations along the way. And we have to believe in something we can't see yet. We have to have a little faith. Look, I, I know that you might be anxious right now. I know Nehemiah and his friends must have been anxious because things didn't look good. I mean, they were riding around the wall. Things were a big mess. There was a lot of work that had to be done. But... A loving God was behind all of this, working in the middle of all of this. So Nehemiah trusted. And you know, we can do the same thing. There are a lot of unknowns. There were a lot of things that we just can't predict. We didn't know we would be doing uh, what we're doing right now as far as just worshiping by live stream and Facebook Live. We don't know about the coronavirus. We don't know what's going to happen. There are things within the United Methodist Church that we don't know. We don't know, our, us United Methodists, what's going to happen at General Conference in May. We don't know about the economy. We don't know about so many things. With our own inner messes that we have and that we bring before God, we don't know how God is going to do all of that work in us. We just don't know. But God is faithful. And we can trust God.
Will you pray with me? God, thank you for being faithful. Thank you for being the God who is reflected in the face of Jesus Christ, who is good and who loves us and whose posture toward us is to move toward us in redeeming love, not away from us in revulsion. God, remind us once again that this may take a while and it might hurt, but you're going to be there with us every step of the way. And we can adjust our expectations along the way. We can do that. We can adapt and we can improvise. Thank you, God, for being the power that works in us to will and to do for your good pleasure. Thank you for being the God that we can trust. Remind us once again, Lord. Remind us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks.